You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Welcome to Webcology. Webcology is the show that takes you into the deepest and darkest ends of the ecosystem on the internet. Our guides will take you on a journey into web marketing and bring you the experts and the information so that you can further explore the web marketing world. Now, here are the hosts of Webcology, Jim Hedger and Dave Davies. Hey everyone, welcome to Webcology on webmasterradio.fm. It's the 16th of April, 2020. This is Jim Hedger from Digital Always Media and Dave Davies from Beatsock Internet Marketing. The uh, crisis continues. Um, we're all still on lockdown. I'm, uh, well, I'm, I'm in my last few days of like official, officially mandated quarantine, chomping at the bit to be able to leave my property. Dave, how are you doing in Victoria? I am, uh, I, well, better than you, it's kind of warm here, so I get to look out at warmer temperatures that I don't get to go out and play in, but. <laughs> uh, I get to look um, at snow that I don't get to go out and play in, so that's yay. True. That's true. Um, so yeah, and, and this week, we actually have a great guest coming up. He's actually here, honest <laughs> to goodness, and, 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 and it's only because of the passage of time, because he was actually supposed to be here this week, unlike last week when we thought he was. That's how yeah. it goes. Dan Fajella, founder and head head of research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, um, Emerge tracks and maps of what's, where's, how's of AI to help business and leaders uh, develop winning AI strategies. Dan's spoken to the World Bank, the UN, the OECD, Interpol, and uh, very possibly at a digital marketing event somewhere near you. He hosts the uh, AI in, Biz in Business podcast. He's got a rival podcast, eh? Uh, where he interviews the top AI and machine learning focused executives and researchers in industries like financial services, pharma, retail, defense, and more. Check out um, AI in Business. You can uh, check it out over at, at uh, Spreaker. Um, Dan, welcome to Webcology. Uh, really glad you're here. 
Yeah, glad to be here, guys. I, I talked to Dave X number of months ago, and he let me know deep fakes were going to be mentioned, and I am uh, happy to hop in and ride with you. Well, you you talked at the UN about deep fakes. Um, what, we did. What was yeah, their concern? We were, yeah, we did. Why were they concerned? Why was the UN concerned about deep fakes? Well, you know, it was in 2018. Um, we started seeing the beginning of what I refer to as programmatically generated everything. So this is to say visual content often, but could be audio that is generated to model uh, inputs from you know, reality uh, in, you know, near in a near exact sense. So there's all kinds of Rembrandt paintings painted by AI now that were you know, never created by Rembrandt. They're just used, using him as a model. They were increasingly doing this with faces and video uh, with body posture, with all kinds of different factors and features of the world. And we presented about this to Interpol. So Interpol is the, the big, you know, intergovernmental sort of policing agency, global policing agency based in Lyon. They have an innovation hub in, in um, Singapore. This stuff was not really all that cool back in 2018, but we gave a talk about it. Then deep fakes of Obama started coming out. Deep fakes of Donald Trump started coming out. You know, the early stuff. This is about a year ago. Um and the UN thought that this was kind of important, and so they called us down to headquarters. We took one of the directors of the crime and justice wing of the UN, a woman by the name of uh, Bettina, who heads up Unicree, which is a pretty, pretty significant wing of the UN, and we basically deepfaked her. We made her say a bunch of stuff she never said by taking some video of her. Um, they, they essentially believe that this could be used for political influence. We think that that's the very tip of the iceberg and that it's a much, uh, much more grandiose shift in kind of the future of the human experience in media. But yeah, for them, it was mostly political, but I'm, I'm hoping to convince them it's a bigger ballgame than that. Well, we, you mentioned Rembrandt. We've had forgeries of the art world for time immemorial. We've had uh, forged audio, forged video in the past. Why are we concerned about deep fakes today? Yeah, you know, uh, the way I explain the dynamic at a high level is this. Um, for something to the tune of, we'll get to Rembrandt in a second, for something to the tune of five generations, audio, video, and uh, photographs were artifacts of things that actually happened. So mm -hmm. full stop. Um, that dynamic is initially gradually at some point quite rapidly shifting to the point where when you hear something that sounds like a person, see something that is a person, whether it's a video, whether it's an image, somebody, you know, doing some kind of action, um, you won't know if that's actually real or not. And much of the case, particularly if it's on open social, it doesn't go through some vetting filters. Um, you really will have no grounding to know if it's actually right or wrong. And of course, that'll be used to bend people's biases, take people that probably already believe something, give them something that they don't really have proof of, but they'd like to believe, and then bend them in, in, that, in that same direction. So that, that overall shift is, in my opinion, quite a big deal. Um, and I think that in the coming 15 years, we'll probably live in virtual realities that are programmatically generated to our preferences, both for our productivity at work, for the way we entertain ourselves, for the way we relate to people. Uh, I, I think that it's going to be a wacky world uh, a couple decades out. But, but yeah, even in the near term, um, the consequences are that we won't know what's real, it's real. We'll see it when we see it on the phone. Yeah, and that, that, that will cause some disruption uh, among the populace. Now, you said that, that I mean, to me, this sounds virtually catastrophic, especially in democracies. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you listed one. I, I've seen the Obama deepfake that you're referring to. Um, you know, 
Yes, you can you can tell it is because I knew it going in, right? I mean, yeah. the, the title of the video was deepfake, right? I, I knew what I was looking at. Um, but it was done probably about a year ago. The technology yeah. has evolved since then. The it technology is available to me on an iPhone or, or me. I mean, I, I was actually toying with it. There's some apps that I can make Zoom. I could be Elon Musk here sitting on, on Zoom, right? I, I just couldn't get it quite running quite fast. Oh, that would have been I, I just fun. That would have been this morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, yeah, I just discovered it while I was, while I was looking, uh, doing the prep work for, for our call here. But so th this is a sort of catastrophic sort of event in, in my mind like this is a serious challenge to our democracies and, and to our systems and you call that the tip of the iceberg like yes. this, this earlier here. so okay so we're talking about you know the, the degradation of, of democracy and information as we know it how could that only be what's the other six seven yeah. we're not seeing <laughs> do, do you want to get spooked or not so if you if you um if you see my my professional presence so at e emerge is you know we service enterprises primarily so big insurance companies uh banks pharmaceutical firms as as mentioned the oecd for example you're just speaking in white papers and stuff for these guys um, so we're talking about relatively near-term return on investments, relatively near-term threats, because that's where they want to stay focused. But my, my attention is quite often on the, on the much deeper consequences. So um, I believe, uh, Dave, and, and we'll see, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I suspect if we catch up in 15 years, uh, it will be in some kind of a virtual ecosystem and you'll be like, oh, by golly, Dan, you weren't as crazy as I thought you were. Um, so I, I think essentially where this is going, so, so we'll have this shift around what's true, what's not, particularly from unvetted sources. So Google may eventually have filters where things that are verified have a green check. In other words, by hardware, by some kind of crypto path, by some sort of in-person validation, whatever, this image or this video has a green check, which means this is not programmatically generated. But machines are going to be very, very good at getting better and better at being flawless in terms of replicating things. So there will be, have to be many vetting process. So Google may eventually have a layer of vetting. Um, a, a, a firm like CNN or Bloomberg is not going to take a video off of Twitter and just pop it up, especially in a world where things are so easily programmatically generated. So that's vetting. But in the broader space, like you said, we're not going to know. That's disruptive to democracy. Where this takes us, though, Dave, in my opinion here, is sort of beyond what the human condition is today. So that's sort of beyond a level of trust in the general social sphere. That's that's option one, that's democratic stuff. But um, beyond the human condition is when we can strap on some VR goggles and we can say something like, okay, I want to learn about the French Revolution in 45 minutes through the first person's perspective of Robespierre himself. Um, and I want you to skip all the crazy stuff about, uh, you know, St. Just and, you know, the, their friendship and whatnot, and just get down to like the political stuff. Um, and then, and then I could just watch that. So that's like a 15 years from now kind of thing. Um, same, same deal hypothetically with, with work. Um, right now, if you were to say, Dave, you're, you're an SEO, so you have to be on the computer, but name a job. If you say, yo, I like this job, I've got great qualifications, but I don't have a cell phone and I don't know how to type. It's like, you're just not going to get a job. So th those are sort of par for the course tools. Now, in the future, par for the course tools will be your ability to exist in these much more productive, immersive work environments where you'll have as many screens up as you want and sort of productive work will require technological adoption. We all feel like what we do for technological adoption is normal, but of course our grandparents don't think so. And things are moving a little faster than in our grandparents' day and even than they were 10 years ago. 
And so um, what will be what will be required for most work is an ability to operate in these really immersive, hyper creatively sort of prompting uh, environments that maybe change their like the, the color tones, change the music to like where your focus and your attention is calibrating you to productivity. And similarly, when you want to learn, you'll have something calibrated to your ability to learn. When you want to be entertained, maybe you want to laugh, something calibrated to allow you to laugh. Um, and you'll have programmatically generated teachers who will be better, more selfless than any actual, more wise maybe than any actual teacher will be. Now to get to programmatically generated personalities, we're going to need, you know, I would guess safely over 10 years of progress. But what I'm getting at is that the longer ball consequences is we go in, we go in the great virtual escape. It is more fulfilling. It is more productive. You are more powerful if you can wield going in than if you wield staying out. And so that's, that's the broader dynamic. And that harkens back to something you said earlier in the interview, where currently our reality is um, sort of rooted in real world artifacts. That painting exists. It's yeah. an anchor on the wall. But 15 years from now, it's a virtual world. That painting was crafted in whatever Photoshop is 15 years yeah. from now, and it's slapped up on the wall. And it could change to meet my tastes as I enter the room. And as Dave enters the room, it could change to meet his. What's real? The, the teacher, though, that sounds a lot like, I mean, there sounds like there's a lot of benefits to these technologies, as well as um, mind-bending, um, society just hurting. Um, <laughs> benefits, perils, yeah, all across. These are just human lenses, right? Nature doesn't care. Nature doesn't care if we all die. Nature doesn't care if we all transmute into some computronium. Na nature just doesn't care. So, yeah, it's both good and bad, as all things are, because nature doesn't care. Uh, so, such is, such is the state of the world. In the um, in the process of of, of creating and like and deploying um, artificial intelligence tech driven technologies, um, how close is the kid down the street who isn't going to school these days to getting his or her hands on this and making my world crazy? Actually, so this is this is interesting. So um, we presented a bit on this at, at United Nations headquarters when we when we kind of spooked them by deep faking their director. We essentially mentioned that you know if we look three years ago at where deep fakes were versus today, it's a different stratosphere. And three years into the future, you know today a reasonably technical high school kid or a reasonably technical undergrad, they could fiddle with something. You know they could fiddle with something, but they're not really going to confuse your universe. Three years from now, though, they may really be able to create quite indistinguishable, you know, clips, images, etc. They're not going to be able to create a whole movie of somebody doing something, but they're going to be able to make things that are, are far, uh, far closer to, to indistinguishable. And of course, you know, a couple years after that, maybe another two, three years after that, maybe we're looking five, six years ahead, we might be able to have students that are creating you know, uh, lewd pornographic stuff of some teacher to try to embarrass them, right? Or, or, or you know, uh, some teacher doing something that that they wouldn't want to be done, and then uploading that on some Twitter handle that they create on a random Thursday night just to mess with people. We're not at the level of that being push button to the point where it's indistinguishable and threatening. But I would say we're you know two to three years away to the point where a reasonably technical undergrad could just cobble something together that for some people actually would spook them, would confuse them, would be seen as real okay um, unless they know otherwise i don't see the politicians in my country in canada reacting to this very quickly or, or even even being able to understand what they should do or how they should do it but 
I do know a group of people who will react to this sort of stuff because they're kind of anal about protecting their images, and that's the large brands, the uh, the Coca Colas, the, um, the, the 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 massive massive brands in the world. Are they in any position to uh, defend themselves? Um, do they, in your experience, do they even know that they might be threatened by by deep fakes? You know, this is interesting. Um, I wonder where the damage will be directed. Um, I suspect that by the time election season comes around here, here in, the, in the States, um, you know, uh, this is enough of a locus of the world for it to be worth people interfering uh, pretty significantly. Um, you think? I think? I think we're going to see, we're going to, you know, in, in, <laughs> unless we get to 40% unemployment and, and, you know, we don't get to tweet about Winnie the Pooh, even if you live in America. Um, but... Uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I fear that on a super regular basis, uh, CCP uh, domination, but that's its own podcast. Um, so the, uh, I, I suspect that most of the attention will be directed, the ardent, real focus, not the one-off little joke stuff, the ardent, true focus will less be company competing with company and more on the political side. So I suspect Coke, actually, I, I don't foresee them under tremendous pressure. There might be jesters, there might be jokers, they're going to be really clean about what's promoted about their brand. They're going to do everything that they can to legally try to crack down. But I think the stuff we're, we're going to have to be most uh, spooked about is, is going to be political uh, in, in nature. Is there any way a, uh, is there any way a uh, country, a nation state can defend against this? Is there, is there something that a nation state should do to defend against this? Or is it just up to, um, I guess, media literacy? Well, there's a number of things. Media literacy, you're never going to be able to count on that to be, you know, it's like, let's lift the state of man, right? It's like, oh, (laughs) Emerson said society is a wave. I'm afraid that things haven't changed much in the 200 years since he said it. So um, I I think what we need is we need hard technical standards in hardware, and we need firm vetting in trusted media sources. And that's going to be about as good as we can get. um, Oh, Dave, sorry. Uh, how, this may seem like a superficial question, but here we go, we might as well. How long are we going to need actors then? Like, they, they view them as a threat. Like, okay, now I can take actors and put them in, and it's like, well, why don't I just create actors? I, I love that you asked this question. I love that you asked this question. So two years ago, I was at an AI conference, and one of the guys who we've had on the podcast, he he's running AI at a company called Unity. So Unity creates these 3D worlds for video games and for movies and stuff like that. And I basically asked like, you know, what, what, why, you know, what, how long until we don't have to pay actors anymore, right? Kind of, kind of a joke, but for me, it's obviously very much not a joke. Um, to answer your question, I think it's going to be a bit until that shift happens for a couple reasons. A, there's still cachet to me liking this one actor because I know they're a human, right? I followed their divorce. I saw them in this movie in the 90s and I like them, right? We're not going to replicate that with some new person. However, however, at some point, right, there's already influencer accounts, fashion influencers that are just programmatically generated pretty looking women and they just have different clothes on and different whatever and these people are gaining following. So it's not that that can't be appended, but the shift I think will be somewhat gradual. But I do suspect that let's say, five years out, um, we will maybe need less, you know, A names to get a movie done. Certainly anything that isn't A names, we, we might be able to programmatically generate quite well. Um, and, and maybe 10 years out, that, that'll be stretched even farther. I do suspect the cream of the crop in acting will still be in the game 10 years, maybe even 12 years into the future. Um, but, but I think a lot of things are going to be able to be generated. 
Do you think that actors will just start licensing themselves? I don't actually have to show up for that shoot, but you can use me. I actually, I mean, there is, so number, that's excellent uh, business sense, Dave. You should be in the AI business. Um, But no, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I think it'll go. I mean, until, until their names don't carry as much cachet, I, I think it's in the interest of the big movie making companies to say Brad Pitt in, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and that's going to get a certain number of people to show up, but yeah, there, there may very well be licensing as is already done in many other, you know, from merchandise to, you know, TV commercials to, you know, Shaquille O'Neal rubbing some ointment on his elbow or, you know, whatever the hell it is. So I, I think that, that there, there will be an extension of that. Um, but I, I think also at some point there's going to be a, a serious dip in demand for, you know, a- actors. And at some point, Dave, so I just want to make this clear. At some point, we will not be watching the same analog film. It won't be, hey, let's go watch this film, right? We will get an experience bent to our emotional state, our preferences, our past movie preferences, what we're paying attention to or not paying attention to, where our eyes are moving in the movie, whatever. Eventually, it'll get to that level of robust immersion to the point where analog will kind of be like we're reading Braille. Like it'll be, it'll be like, uh, like it won't, it won't be anything to us. It'll just be vapid and empty and boring and lame and, and unengaging across the board. It'll be just ubiquitously just blasé. Um, so we will eventually get there and that's maybe the 10 or 15 year range. But yeah, I do think for a little while, there's going to be some licensing of, of faces, voices, et cetera. Okay. On the way to that reality, I'm sorry. We have to, we have to give some, uh, some, some, some voice actors, uh, uh, a few pennies and royalties. We got to take a break here at Webcology. We have, uh, Dan Fajella, uh, founder and head of research at Emerge. Um, friends, you're listening to Webcology on webmasterradio.fm. It's the 16th of April, 2020. Stick around back after these messages. security, and scalability. WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Here's the truth you need to know about podcasting. The biggest problem you face right now as a future podcaster is the myth that it takes an enormous amount of time or effort to produce a high-quality professional podcast. Luckily for you, there's a solution to your problem. If you're an online marketer who really needs to grow an audience of buyers but can't do all the heavy lifting alone, then here's the solution you're looking for. Introducing the DFY Podcasting System. Here's what you get. 30 minutes of one-on-one training. A weekly podcast for you or your company. Distribution to almost every podcast portal. An embeddable player for your website. An ebook called How to Podcast, created for WMR.FM show hosts. And much, much more. And best of all, you'll start seeing results with a DFY podcast system within a couple of weeks. You're just one podcast away from growing brand awareness and engagement in your business. Log on to podcast.wmr.fm and sign up for a deeply discounted rate today. That's podcast.wmr.fm. A health threat anywhere is a health threat everywhere. I'm Dr. Phil. 
A new coronavirus outbreak called COVID-19 started in China and is spreading to many countries, including the U.S. It's critical to get the facts about how to protect our friends and loved ones. While CDC is working with states and communities to stop the spread of the virus, health workers and emergency response efforts need our support. The CDC Foundation, a nonprofit organization, is focusing on immediate and critical needs that help protect our communities here at home and those around the world. We can all play a role in stopping this deadly virus. Get updates, learn how to protect your friends and family, and find out how to help. Go to cdcfoundation.org. That's cdcfoundation.org. Together, our impact is greater. This has been a public service announcement brought to you by the CDC Foundation. Commercials off. Now back to Webcology, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here are the hosts, Jim Hedger and Dave Davies. Hey everyone, welcome back to Club College and WebmasterRadio.fm. It's the 16th of April, 2020. This is Jim Hedger from Joyce Media and Dave Davies from Beanstalk Internet Marketing. And we're joined by Dan Fagella, who is the founder and head of research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. And Dan, you are the head of research at um, an artificial intelligence research company. That means you get to see some pretty neat stuff. Who's doing interesting stuff with AI? I mean, we're we're, we're show primarily about search. I want to ask yeah. you about the search engines, but I don't want to put you on the spot because I haven't actually asked the question. Yeah. But yeah. do you do you have an interest in what the search engines are doing with AI? I do. Um, you know, so here's why it's not my main focus. So we are paid by uh, generally large companies, a, a billion, two billion, and up in revenue, who essentially are asking the question where will artificial intelligence improve our efficiencies, our revenues, or give us a future competitive advantage? So what are the what are the trends that are worth latching onto? What matches with our priority pillars? What can we enable? Now, search engines are obviously hyper vague. Like what's happening back there is, is intentionally not known. Um, and so I can't bring that to bear for clients and actually add value to their life. I also can't go to the, to the OECD or to the World Bank and give a presentation and say, Here's exactly what it's doing and here's its outputs. My work involves talking to the enterprises who can actually talk about what they're doing and talk to the vendors who can actually talk about what they're doing and fight hard. And this is a lot of primary and secondary research. It's a huge amount of my work is talking to people like the head of AI at Raytheon, the head of core machine learning at Facebook. I mean, very high level folks and getting a sense of how do we measure the ROI here? So I need some degree of visibility on those things. And because Google is never going to, you know, open up that can of worms, it yeah. makes it harder for me to add value to the people that, you know, help me pay payroll. So, <laughs> so it ends up not being the biggest focus. But do you want me to talk about some areas that are, are interesting in our opinion? Well, um, one, thing, one thing I'm interested in, in, in a world that is evolving so quickly, how do you develop baselines? Um, what, what is standard today is completely different tomorrow. You're right. Well, actually, that's kind of how we... To, to be frank, I mean, you're leading me into my uh, you're leading me into my my, my value prop here. So That's when we're talking sure. clients, I think part of the part of the the value prop for for emerge is so our our work called the AI opportunity landscape is like most of our research work. This is looking at the totality of the startup ecosystem in a given sector. Let's say insurance. We work with a number of very large insurance companies and the totality of known use cases in the enterprise. 
Now, it's very hard to get beyond press releases and get into where money's actually being invested. A lot of time is spent on, on determining you know, who's investing in what, who has what kind of initiatives going, et cetera. But to your point, that map of the startup ecosystem and the evidence of ROI, the ease of deployment, the relative level of traction on the startup side and the enterprise side, six months later is gonna be different. Six more months later is gonna be different. And what does this help show us? It helps to show us what areas are consistently growing, which ones are shrinking. We might find that something like enterprise search and banking, for example, is a very interesting use case that has some proxies for ROI, but over the course of the last year really hasn't relatively grown in terms of how many new people seem to actually be using it and how many new use cases we have. While something like, let's say, payment fraud might have a rife number of new startup competitors and a lot of funds raised and a lot of adoption in big banks. And this might help tell us, hey, over the last 18 months, this is a trend probably that we should be paying more attention to as an enterprise. So to your point, there is no flat ben benchmark. There is the following of the progression of capabilities and staying abreast of the things that are actually going to shake up your darn industry. And you can't do that unless you have multiple benchmarks over time. And that's really where we try to focus, you know, and 90% of our work is on that kind of, uh, of benchmarking uh, off the cuff, but it, it has to evolve, as you said. Something that has been haunting me since you, you sort of touched on it earlier when you were talking about workspaces. And I mean, I have an Oculus. I, I mean, I, I love the thing. And I mean, that it's one of the perks too, where I'm like constantly frustrated going, okay, I look forward to like deep things. I'm like, why can't I look like me and the person on the other side look like them, right? Because we don't have that technology in, in place yet. Um, but that'd be fun. Or why can't I look like Elon Musk when I'm wandering around here, right? Or whatever I wanted to, what persona I wanted to, to, to have um, properly. Um, but at the same time, when you were talking about it in the workspace, um, I, I couldn't help but be frightened um, by the tracking uh, that, that employers would then have, not just over what a person is doing. I mean, you can go, how much time did, you know, there's software to sit on my computer and go, how much time did Dave spend on Facebook today? But to actually know when my attention is on a specific segment of my screen, when, yeah. when my attention is drawn, to actually get insight into the way almost my brain is, is working and, and where my eye is going. It's going to open up a lot of privacy concerns. Undeniably. So this rolls up to some big picture stuff, Dave. You're starting to say, you're, you're giving me some great softballs here for some very exciting. <laughs> but no, no, in all seriousness, I mean, these are excellent questions. So there is the question of data sovereignty. In other words, that data that's captured about attention, can I, as the user, say yes or no to different types of data and different types of personalization? about the collection in the first place. Can I also say yes or no to who gets access to it? Only me, the company, so they can personalize my experience or the company and maybe even my employer so they know how hard I'm working or something. Or is this stuff just very vague and vapid? Hey, go ahead and use it. And then the company that provides it to you pipes the info to the employer, then you might not know it. Or the company uses your data, regardless of what your employer says, they use your data to learn about all their users and build a better, more addictive, more productive product. Now, addictive is bad, right? All, all companies want to make something addictive. They're bad. No, they're, they're like me and you, right? They're, they're trying to make money. That Very rarely are they intentionally any more malicious, right? Facebook wants you to use Facebook, just like you, Dave Davies, want to give more keynotes, okay? Um, so <laughs> I, I don't demonize Zuckerberg. I, I, don't, I don't sanctify Zuckerberg. 
but I don't demonize Zuckerberg. He's certainly not as nice as you, Dave. I'll say that. So um, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a friendly Canadian sort of vibe to him. But uh, but yeah, so so the, you know, who gets access? Is is it collected? And if so, who's permitted to have it, use it in what way? I think these are data sovereignty questions that are more and more going to come to the fore. And many of these conversations, fortunately, I think um, organizations like the IEEE, who we've been following for many years, who's working on ethically aligned design and aspects of building AI-related products, um, are thinking about, can we create soft standards? Can we create expectations for product developers, for user-facing AI uh, applications? Where this takes us, though, Dave, is it takes us to a place where whoever owns the substrate wins. So I have an article called The Substrate Monopoly um, on, on my own personal site. I think if you Google substrate monopoly, it'll come up. Um, this is essentially about the idea that the pinnacle, the top of the dominance hierarchy on Earth, is who owns the computational substrate that houses the majority of human experience, that is to say right here, right, wearing it on your face, and that houses the most powerful AI. If you own the substrate, if you're the company that owns a substrate where most human experience is being piped in through and where most of the powerful AI is being trained, you win the world. You win it all. That's the, that's the peak. That's the peak of the world. So, so this will eventually be a governmental, super powerfully kind of thing. China's just going to be able to bake that in real hard with their own citizenry right off the cuff, no problems, no questions asked. Um, but right now, these things are being built in proxy by the Googles and the Facebooks or whatnot. But eventually, as the technology develops, that will be the power position. But it, it sounds to me like we should basically kind of watch China and then assume that every time we're offered anything for free, <laughs> that that's what we're about to install onto our face. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a little pessimistic. But yes, some, something, um, something, something along those lines, yeah. Uh, I think is the name of the game, and it does get creepy after a certain span of time. Well, it strikes me that in the in the West, uh, but to, to make it just a little creepier, you can gamify the crap out of this and get people doing it because get people behaving because they want to behave that way. Of course. of course, you could. Yeah, a Pokemon Go, anyone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think I think you're totally right. I mean, here's the here's the thing. I I will ice cold. I will say this right now, and again. Either 10 years from now, you have this crazy guy, Dan, on, what a, what a weirdo he was. Or 10 years from now, you'll be like, oh, by golly, jeepers, he was right. Um, 10 years from now, unaugmented vision, 10 to 15 years, let's say, unaugmented vision mm -hmm. will just be so antiquated, right? If your kid breaks their arm in school, you want a notification on the, on like, bleeping in your freaking eyeball. I want to know exactly how it happened. That's what yeah, I want to know. Want, you want to know it off the cuff, right? If you want to talk to somebody, you want push button immediate access. If you want to find something in your house, you want it highlighted. If you want, you know, if you need to be reminded of something, some meeting that you don't remember you set because it's on Google Cal, but it's not kicking a text to your phone, you want it to pop up in your visual field. You want to be able to potentially customize that. That could be through goggles. It could be through contacts. 15 years, I suspect the contact stuff will be pretty robust, but I, I don't know if it'll be mainstream. Eventually, this becomes brain-computer interface. But um, augmented reality will just be a value layer on top of the world. Of course, this could also become, and like you said, it could be game, gamified. It could become a little bit horrific, though, as we start adding too many layers, right? We have work, we have personal, we have all these preferences. It's like your email when you add all those plugins to Gmail to make it do this and make it do that. And then you can't even, like, answer things because all these friggin' pop-ups are coming up. Like, if that was your life... That would be pretty disturbing. So, you know, we'll have an interesting interface, but everybody's baseline consciousness, if you're productive, if you're responsible, will be to some degree upgraded uh, in some way. 
No, we, we, we touched on it a, a, a little bit earlier, and, and one of the things, and it was just the, the, the spark in, in, in my brain, it certainly wasn't, wasn't where it'll be you know, 10, 15 years from now, or even three years from now, as you're talking about, but um, Microsoft had launched Turing NLG. We, we covered that previously on the show. We don't want to dig into that, but to talk about sort of what we would traditionally think of as AI, what you're probably hired a lot to, right? I'm an investment company. I want to know how to like deal with which shares and, and this sort of thing to, to deal with. Um, the sort of ones and zeros. When that one launched, one of the things that got me about it is its understanding of language and being able to fill in the blanks and suddenly create logical verbiage in a way that we couldn't until now. It, it, it's a big leap forward from Google's BERT um, and, and presumably, you know, three years from now will be five times, 10 times, 20 times where, from where we are now. And I couldn't help but think, now you combine this with what I know from Dan on deep fakes, and this is literally one of the first thoughts I had, that's a very, very frightening word because now I have a responsive deep fake that can now engage with the world around me. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, and, and the NLP that you're, that you're saying right now, that would, of course, if there was a, a virtual avatar who could have a conversation with you, it would be leveraging NLP. In other words, your audio, it doesn't take in audio waves by itself, right? It's going to transmute that into text and then make sense of it and then bring it back to you. So, so that, that undercurrent NLG work, natural language generation, of which, again, there's been spittering progress for a little while. OpenAI apparently has something so powerful they're not going to release it. Microsoft has their stuff. And every year there's big leaps in, in NLP and computer vision broadly. Um, that that will undergird those things. When we can actually get to, you know, Turing test passing AI, I think we found that there's a lot of challenges to getting there. However, like in other words, indistinguishable conversation, which involves, so we have a lot of experience in conversational interface and financial services and retail. Um, a lot of our biggest clients are in those spaces. So uh, as it turns out, knowing, remembering what you said four sentences ago and using that in context in what I say now is incredibly challenging for machines. It's incredibly challenging. So the temporal elements, the recalling the past, the um, you know nuanced responding to questions that involve context of things that I haven't as an algorithm trained on, like a human, like if, if I was like, Dave, what's that behind you? You know, you can turn around as a human and, you know, talk about your Deadwood poster, right? But, you know, as a machine, like if I say, well, you know, the guy at my branch didn't say that, or like I say, well, like, you know, like, you know, you know, you know, the branch on Main Street, well, you know, Steve never says such and such. Like it may not put the pieces together of what branch you're talking about. Like it won't pull in the context. So we find that the, the touring thing breaks. However, a first response can often be very compelling and quite real. And, and some kind of a lengthy article can often be created, as you've said, that feels very much like it's created by humans. Those alone could be used for nefarious pretending purposes, um, but also for productive business purposes. We have more and more of the ability for AI to handle the first, maybe the second message about what's my bank balance, about, you know, some of these more simple questions. Um, but but it's going to be a bit until we can get to the immersive conversation. Yeah, you bring up some interesting points, and now I'm suddenly going, okay, and you got to be, we'll, we'll have to, as a society, be much more aware of what apps do I have, because if that app is now tracking me and listening in the background, it could then fill in a lot of those blanks you're talking about. And pretend to be you is what you're saying, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if, if somebody hypothetically could train on all of your Gmail messages, 
and train on. I am sure, by the way, that very complicated cyber hacker folks, like social engineering kind of people, do this. I'm sure. They will crack somebody's email. They will figure out how they respond to a simple email, how they send a complicated one, what they sound like when they're angry, what they, you know, Lord. statistically analyze the way they structure sentences and then find some model to maybe not at the level of Microsoft's cutting edge, but at some level help to calibrate sentences, wording, et cetera, that looks like, you know, this head of compliance at HSBC so that they can then, you know, pretend to be that person to, to get something bad done. Um, so yes, I think there, there are things there to be worried about. Even if we don't get to conversational fluency, I think still nonetheless, that ability to naturally generate, um, is spooky and, you know, it is, is nice under controlled circumstances, but it's spooky if it's not. Okay. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. We've gone full clock, but Dan, this has been simultaneously one of the most interesting and terrifying interviews we've done at the same time. That's amazing. Um, thank you so much. It's been it's been tr truly amazing interview. Of course. Hey, glad to have glad to be here with you guys. Thanks so much. Friends, that was uh, that was Dan Pagella, the uh, founder and head of research at Emerge. Um, he was it's Emerge with a J, by the way. If people want to find it, it's emerj.com. It's not not with a G E, just for clarity's sake. <laughs> uh, type it if you, if you want to go do it from Google. Type in um, Dan. Uh, emerge with, with with Jay and artificial intelligence. It will take you there. Uh, first first result. Uh, Dan Pajala, thank you so much for joining us. On behalf of Dave Davies from Beanstalk Internet Marketing, this is Jim Hedge from Digital Always Media. Um, friends, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, don't touch your face, rank well, be well, and we will talk to you next week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.